Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. Today's guest is a comedian, actor, and either a really nice asshole or a jerky gentleman. His charm is that you can never quite tell. You may know him from Community, The Soup, or his most recent and hilarious show, Animal Control, set in his and our hometown of Seattle. He's also been in everything from The X-Files to The Bear and has hosted the White House Correspondents' Dinner. How do you kick off an interview with an actor? Action. Do people actually say action? Oh, yeah. Yeah? You gotta do something. Not just go? Yeah, sometimes directors think they're being fancy if they don't say action. Oh. And then everyone goes... Oh, now? <laughs> then you realize it's become a part of the language and the lexicon of making stuff. You kind of have to say it. I remember a friend of mine, I think they would just go, shoot it. And I'd be, I'd be like, well, they are. Everything's <laughs> happening. Just tell them when to start. Also, that's like aggressive. <laughs> like it's even more aggressive than action because shoot it also it. could be right. <laughs> like, shoot what? Oh, my God. Happening. What's attacking? I mean, I have... <laughs> Well, if you watch NFL football and college football, they don't really they don't say hike or hut anymore. They have they come mm. up with their own words to start the play. And I understand that because it's tricking the defense. I literally think Aaron Rodgers just goes, let's go. And then they start. Mm. But you, you're you not trying to trick actors. Let, let's <laughs> go isn't a very clever code word. No, why aren't you doing it? Go, go, go. We already started. <laughs> We, I, there was a director, oh, Joe Russo, who directed, he, he and his brother directed a bunch of communities, but they would, when they wanted there to be excitement, like, okay, here we go, he would just scream it, and it was great. Not in a, like, action, you dummies, more like, <laughs> action, and it was exciting. Awesome. I wonder if everyone can actually recognize your voice. I think you have a very recognizable voice. And my accent. Don't you think my accent? You got, you got that Mercer Island accent. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, I paid for that accent. <laughs> parents paid for it. A lot of property taxes. <laughs> I'm sorry my parents did better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a thing. That's what everyone feels like, ooh, Mercer Island. I'm like, yes, my parents did well and wanted us to be raised. I'm just kidding. My parents paid, uh, paid $90,000 for their home on Mercer Island. Mm. Now mm. it's worth $36 million. Wow. Gosh. Yeah. Seattle, it's done well. I mean, everyone complains about it, but I was like, it's weird when people are like, fuck this prosperity. I mean, <laughs> I get it. It's hard to afford a home, but uh, Seattle, I'm when my parents moved there in the 70s with us, it was depressed. And it said there was multiple billboards that said, with the last person in Seattle, please turn the lights out. Hmm. Wow. That was when like, Boeing was depressed. The fuel shortage was in. Warehouser wasn't, you know, was big, but it wasn't enough. And 
you could buy anything. And now it's, it's dripping with money. Hmm. Thank God. <laughs> Isn't that right? Joseph and Mary? Great. <laughs> so for those who haven't guessed who you are yet by all of the various clues that we've just Rain dropped. Rain Wilson. <laughs> me <laughs> yeah he's next he's next time on on labyrinths do you mind uh briefly introducing yourself my name is rain wilson how fucking dare you uh <laughs> my name is joel McHale, and i am an alcoholic okay well not yet i mean i'm still drinking so i mean yes i'm the fun part of alcoholism uh <laughs> you know we could keep this light if you want but often we go kind of Dark. Oh, let's go dark. Okay. I think it might be good to go dark. Yeah. So, you know, we often, we're talking to people about when they've been lost, the times in their lives when they don't know where the fuck they're going or what's going to happen next, and they're worrying they made some bad wrong turns, and we're wondering when that was for you. Well, when I began dealing fentanyl, I was like, this is going great, but boy, it's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> might, might be bad. <laughs> well, as a child, I was very lucky because I had, you know, like loving parents who, I mean, every parent's flawed, but boy, my parents did the right thing in that they loved us and we fucked up all the time, but uh, they were like, ah, it's going to be okay. But um, I think the first time I felt like, oh boy, what's, how am I going to manage this? I'm terribly dyslexic and some would say undiagnosed ADHD. I don't know what, mm. why people would think that. Uh, no, um, distracted by everything all the time. But in school, I always felt like, you know, I couldn't read, couldn't do math. And I felt like a dummy. And then, you know, they told me I was a dummy in second grade after I was like evaluated. They were like, he seems fine. Yeah, the dumb shit can't read or write or do a math problem, uh, but he's fun. So they said I was a slow starter. And I think that kind of permeated me for a long. I was just like, oh, I, it just takes me a while to figure things out. Uh, so growing up, I cheated on everything, which worked out great because I was pretty good at it. And I cheated all the way through college, which there you go, University of Washington. <laughs> They're going to revoke your degree. Be careful. Yeah. Oh, shit. Uh, the one thing I liked was history because you could just listen to lectures and then I could scribble it out. And my handwriting was that of like an, like if an adolescent blackbird walked into an inkwell and then walked onto a piece of paper. That's what my handwriting looked like. <laughs> so I was good at sports and... I just felt like being on stage was the way, when I first started doing that, I was like, oh, this is fun. This is way better than school. And I hope I can do this. But it's not like parents are like, you should definitely go into the arts. That's where the money is. <laughs> and eventually, where I kind of was like, I, I would like to do this as much as I can before the real job police come and take me away. Hmm. And I met some really important people in my life, two in particular, well, three really. I had two close high school friends who I started acting with, and then this other friend came along and started acting with us as well. And they were super confident, more confident than I was. And they were very accepting and like, yeah, we, we, we're all going to do this. When I hear like, oh, I was a theater nerd and the jocks were like jerks to us. We were all jocks and we were in the theater and I kind of adopted their attitude, which was like, oh, no, 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 we're not nerd. We're the cool kids because we're doing mm. this. I mean, I was still terrible at school and uh, just got awful. And my poor mom, two of her three sons were are dyslexic and she mm. is was a newspaper editor. Oh, no. And my dad's dyslexic and won't admit it to this day. He won't admit it which is hilarious because he reads as slow as I do. Anyway, that, I've talked about dyslexia. I mean, I'm mo much more, I used to be very ashamed of it and thought it really was connected to my intelligence and connected to, you know, who I was, you know, really defined me. And I kept it hidden and I would, I'm sure I overcompensated by it being a douche, but in so many other ways, I was also a douche. So then 
Boy, I, I remember there was a moment because I can't read teleprompter very well. I'm so much. Yeah, that's what I was. That's what I was wondering. Like, how does that play into memorizing lines and things like that? Uh, dyslexia has nothing to do with line. That does not. Uh, memory is not affected with dyslexia. You can still read. It just takes a lot longer. And in fact, comprehension. There's a number of very good arguments to be made that comprehension is greater for a lot of dyslexics. Sure, it takes a fuck ton more time, but memorizing lines was never a real problem. From all the actors I know, because I was like, I don't know how you do that. And I was like, well, you rehearse and you eventually, you know what the scene's about and you go over it so many times that it's just the thing that, you know, it's like, I don't know, how do you know all the rules of baseball? I was like, can you just play a lot of baseball? Yeah, if it's a lot of text and it's complicated, absolutely, it's a whole thing. And I've been in things where it's a lot of words and know the words. I think there's like two rules in the Screen Actors Guild, which is show up and know the words. Oh, and, <laughs> and pay your fucking Screen Actors Guild dues so you can get crappy insurance. That's part of their credo that says it on their seal. But uh <laughs> I, back, way back when, in 2004, when you guys were in junior high, I auditioned for what became The Soup, eventually. It was not called The Soup in the beginning. There was about three and a half minutes of teleprompter, and I fucking memorized it. I memorized Hmm. like 10 jokes, word for word, basically, for that audition. So I tricked them that way, and I improvise a lot. So that really helped that thing. And I eventually got it. But when, I mean, I got the job, but when the show began to actually, we were like, all right, well, the show's happening. Now here's 22 minutes of teleprompter jokes. Plus you, as you sit on a green screen, I'm sure you guys have dealt with them before, but you know, it's like being a weather forecaster where there's Images appearing, there's shit happening, and then all of a sudden you have to read. And so for that first six months, at least six months, it would take me, I remember the first few shows, it would take me four hours to get through 20 minutes of reading. Wow. Uh, And that was on camera telling jokes. So not only was it just reading, but, you know, like, deliver it. In fact, I remember one of the crew members one crew member quit because they were like, well, they hired a dummy, uh, which I was like, okay, well, enjoy not hearing fart jokes. I guess that was a blessing. And then uh, years later, we started doing the show live. And I had gotten up so much confidence. And I was like, oh, this show is working. I'm being paid for it. The anxiety and the pressure of saying all this right was definitely had gone down. Is your ability to actually read the teleprompter somehow improved by that point? Or are you just improving more and more okay with not saying exactly what it says? Oh, I'm still improvising, but I let go of when I would fuck up, I'd be like, it's fine. And then I began advertising. I was like, we're doing the soup live and I have dyslexia, so I don't know how this is going to go. And that was like, even though like everyone's like, yeah, that's a great way to do it. That was like a threshold in me that I was like, I'm admitting to this thing publicly a lot. And that was liberating. Everyone's like, well, then it all worked out. And, you know, these are luxurious problems. I was being paid a lot to tell jokes on television. At the same time, I'm like, you know, and you see people playing professional sports. You're like, oh, if you miss that catch, you might not have a job next week. Right. You lose your livelihood. And so... Yeah, I put a lot of pressure on myself about that. And so those things were all there. And as the show began to work slowly, because no one watched the show for like a year and a half. And then, thank God, no one watched it. Um, The other place, like I was on Almost Live, which for all you old Seattle folks out there was a... I remember Almost Live, yeah. There you go. So you just showed your age. I actually don't remember. These are fun moments when I like he's only five years older than me. And there are many a thing that I don't know what the hell he's talking about. So it just happened in that five year span at some point. Right. What is that? It was a locally produced sketch comedy show on 
King 5 Television, the NBC affiliate. And it was hosted by John Keister, who definitely went on some national fame and then had people like Nancy Guppy, guy named Bill Stanton, Pat Cashman. Then, of course, uh, the Bill Nye the Science Guy came out of that show. Mm. Anyway, on that show, this uh, this will come back to those points. I got on that show out of college. They were very nice to take me in. And I, my reading was really bad. So like live, tape to live. So things happened. You didn't get another shot. You just did it. If you fucked up, the fuck up was there in the show. And so those live sketches with people in the audience and the pressure I was putting on myself as a 22-year-old, three-year-old to do it uh, was just not great. And they would be like, yeah, you're way better in these field pieces where you get a few takes and you're not worried so much about the words and doing it live. That's why I like with SNL, I could probably stumble my way through it now but at the time i don't know how those guys do it like the the pressure of live television that way just did a movie with beck bennett he's a terrific human being and i was talking to him about i'm like how the fuck do you guys do that and like like it was like the pressure is crazy and then i like i was talking to name drop again bill Hader. he has dyslexia too and i'm like Hmm. how the hell did you do he's like well a lot of it was improvised like when he was doing Stefan but he was like he would not allow anybody to fuck with his words like do not mm. change a thing and and that boy that made total sense to me anyway going all the way back almost live was locally made and it allowed me to kind of fuck up and mm. get used to being on TV on on a small scale i mean sure it was still broadcast throughout Seattle and Vancouver and stuff like that but a small scale compared to nationally, like, good luck, kid. Here's your shot. Oh, you fucked it up. Sorry. Mm. Right. And then with the soup, it was so low rent, bare bones for so long. And E was, he was way more popular. I mean, E was at one point incredibly popular. It wasn't as popular. It was like a dip in the popularity. And then they eventually got, I don't know if you've heard of them, the Kardashians. But it was this weird time when we were on at 10 o'clock on Fridays, and this is way before, guys, before streaming. For all you young kids listening out there, they're like, I can watch television anytime. It was, that's obviously not how it ever worked. But 10 o'clock on a Friday night on basic cable was a desert. Hmm. And so we were allowed to fuck around. And that really got me to relax. So that's, that was my profession. That's a long, that was like a 20 minute answer. <laughs> Pretty awful. No, no, you you told the story. That was fantastic. I was wondering if maybe you could, I don't know if it's possible to do this, because how do you describe, it's like asking a blind person to describe what they see. But I'm curious to know if you can describe to me the experience of dyslexia. And I wonder, I just wonder if like I'm the opposite of dyslexia, which is I can remember things that I read, but if you told it to me, like if you if I hear a person's name, I immediately it's like I, I know that I experienced the sensation of hearing that person's name, but it's immediately gone. It's the, it's the weirdest experience for me because like I just am not an auditory learner at all. So I just don't retain information that comes at me auditorially. I really struggle, honestly, with podcasts, <laughs> funnily enough. Just say my name, talking to Joel. We're talking to Joel. We're talking okay, to Joel. Okay, Joel, right Joel, now. Joel. Isn't that right, husband and Chris? Yes, it is. We're talking to Joel. What are you doing? Uh, well, there's two things happening because I can't remember names for shit. And I have a, like a zillion cousins and I can't remember their names. And I've known them all my life. Yikes. And I'm like, Maggie Mary. <laughs> M, cousin M. Uh, like Brad Pitt talks about having face blindness because people are like, no, we've met. And he's like, uh-huh. Okay, so you were telling me about dyslexia and what it feels like. Oh, well, it's different than remembering names. I'm terrible okay. at remembering names, and that's probably, I'm guessing that's ADHD. When I see politicians that are good at that shit, it is... Uh, it's like watching a rocket scientist. I'm just like, how did you remember that? I mean, I get it. They probably do a little exercise in their brain, but some people are just better at it. And I, I was telling my dad and my dad's like, oh, I'm right there with you. And I'm like, yes. But are you saying when you read that you just flow right through it? No problem. You can just 
flow right through it, no problem. I'm a fast reader and I retain the information. Whereas if you were to speak that information to me, I would have to really concentrate. And even then, like I have the memory of having heard a thing, but I don't have the memory of everything that I heard. Huh. We, yeah, we, boy, we definitely learn different. My wife is, she's an incredible student and she will tell you, she, I mean, she was like straight A's all through, all through the end of college. And, but she'll be like, yeah, but I don't remember a lot of it, but I can tell you, I can tell you what was going on in Chile in 1971. (laughs) And when Pinochet came to power, what a dick. And uh, (laughs) so that said, I can only really learn through lectures, reading Mm. shit like our washer dryer broke. And I was like there, I pulled out the manual and I was like, this might as well be, I don't know, in Latin. So that all said, uh, audible.com is the greatest gift that this technology has ever offered because I can finally now, and I've gone back and read like a lot of Dostoevsky or just listened to it and be like, that was great. I mean, it was pretty long, and a lot of people were named Alexandrich. (laughs) (laughs) They all had like a lot of people with the same first name, but uh, it's okay. I like my friend Matt Olson. He reads so fast. Like if he were on a game show, uh, we used to play this game called You Don't Know Jack, and he would just he could read it so fast and comprehend it so fast. He would pretend he would just wait for everybody to catch up, so you can see how bad I'd be at that game. But um. Yeah, no, when I see what people are like, well, the words are all backwards. I'm like, the words don't really look like anything. Hmm. Hmm. The weird part is that some days I read better and some days I don't. Huh. You know, like playing a basketball game. Like, oh, your, your three-pointer is really going down today. You know, it's, it's a weird, wonderful, wacky, terrible thing. It's great. Hmm. Anyway, when my son got diagnosed with dyslexia, my older son, I was like, oh, you're describing to the doctor. I was like, you're describing... Ha- how I read. And she was like, oh, yeah, I was wondering which one of you had it because it's passed down. Huh. Yeah. And I was like, oh, and that was, you know, that was like 12 years ago. I have like Peter Pan syndrome. So I'm just like, it'll be fine. And uh, I just keep keep running. Do you think you would have been different in your attitude or personality without the dyslexia? Did that make you a sarcastic asshole? Um, uh, I mean that in the nicest way. No, no, I believe me. That was a very nice description of it. I don't know. I think I would have been sarcastic and an asshole anyway. Because whenever I hear, uh, oh, comics have to be tortured, they have to have Hmm. this horrible dark side. I'm like, well, what about the people that are tortured and have a horrible dark side and just aren't that funny? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They're just people with this just not very funny people that are tortured and dark. Or I do think comics often tap into their uh, conscious minds and go back and and do stuff like that. But I think actors do that. And I think people, almost anybody in the arts does that and expresses it through the different ways because that's what that that's their instrument. And so I know a lot of comedians that, yes, have dark sides, but I'm just as worried about what they're doing as I am about my friends that aren't comics. And, you know, you get somebody like... I don't know, like Will Ferrell. Uh, I've interacted with him a few times and I wouldn't go, hey, that guy has this dark side and that's why he's yeah. so funny. I would he's drawing like, on his demons. Yeah. yeah, that guy's just really fucking funny and he's great and he's cool and he's kind and he's a healthy person seemingly. So anyway, that's a long, I mean, everyone's got shit, obviously. And uh, yeah, so that's a long explanation. Again, my problem is explaining things for too long, like I am right now. How I'm not <laughs> stopping talking. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can I ask you what your philosophy of comedy is? Like, what makes something funny? Oh, geez. I don't know. Surprise? 
I don't know. It's a good question. I can't go like, here's the mathematic hmm. breakdown of what makes this thing where you get this answer. And I mean, there's there's joke writing and there's joke writing techniques that definitely people learn over the years and that def but that doesn't mean they're great joke writers. It means they might know the mechanics of it, but that's a, it is fucking subjective. Do you think there are any rules about, or are there any rules you follow about punching up, punching down, or when something is too soon, is something ever too soon? When you're dealing with real life as the sort of source of material for comedy, is there a line that you walk and how do you walk that line? I mean, my rule, like my rule for acting or, it's not really a rule, but like if it's acting or comedic acting or dr dramatic acting, well, first of all, be prepared, but be ready for anything to happen. So like I always make so many sports analogies, but if you're a baseball pitcher, you can learn all the mechanics of throwing a pitch. But once you get in the fucking game, you better just throw the ball and know that your training and practice is going to be there. So in these scenes then I know, I was like, all right, I got the words. I, I'm interacting with these things. Now let's, let's see what the scene is. And directors are usually very good at that there because they know what they want. And that's when it's like, what is the wind blowing on our sails to make this boat move forward? That is the scene. So I'm always like, anything can happen. It's an alive thing for this little moment. And then, then it's over. Uh, as far as material that is being chosen by comedians that say things out loud on stage that were okay to say, I guess, years ago and not okay now or now it's okay again or whatever it is. I, well, first of all, you can tell some pretty crazy jokes. If they're super funny, then it probably will work, even though it might be upsetting to a lot of people, if you're one of these types of comedians, or you can be talking about a subject that's benign. And if it's not good joke writing, then it's just boring and not great. I'm trying to think of like, Doug Stanhope did an amazing thing. This is now years ago. He went to a, if I have this right, I'm sorry, Doug, if I fuck this up. He, he, he taped a special in a New York Yankees bar in New York. So it's like New York themed. Mm -hmm. And he closed with a 10 minute bit called Fuck the Yankees. <laughs> which was spectacular. And the number of lasers he was dancing over to get to what he was doing was a marvel to hmm. observe. And he had them cheering at the end. You know, that's a really great image of doing a comedic bit, especially a kind of roasty bit, is like you you have to be a guy who's like breaking into a museum to steal, you know, the golden egg that's behind the glass or whatever. You have to be like dancing around the lasers. Yeah. Getting just close enough, bending over backwards to like twist around them, at, but then to emerge on the other side. Yeah. So, yeah, just do that. Do that. But like do funny. that over and over. <laughs> and it was funny. Uh, but when I hear comics saying kids don't have senses of humor and I can't do colleges anymore, I don't know what they're I, I disagree with that. When I, I don't know, I did one. I did the University of Texas and there were, you know, people like don't curse, don't don't make fun of traditional values or whatever. <laughs> when I hear that, I'm like, fucking hey, let's go. So that was a college and they were great. Hmm. I find that almost every college audience, they're young, they're excited. And the only time when people start screaming at me is usually when they're drunk hmm. or they're older. Usually they're usually offended by something, but they forget about all the things that we can say now that we couldn't say then that, you know, like, I, I don't know. I, I just don't find... I, I, it seems to be that's the comedian's problem or the commentator's problem. They're like, I can't say anything anymore. And I'll be like, what the fuck were you saying before? Uh, <laughs> so anyway, that's a very long explanation. Here's another sort of way to ask that question. This is out of genuine curiosity because I love comedy and I can't really quite put my finger on why I love comedy. But like, how do you make people feel 
like they're in the joke with you instead of standing outside of the joke or are the object of the joke? I, that's a good question. I mean, when I mean, some people become the objects of jo- the subject of your joke is the object of your joke. And that could be, I don't know, it could be a person or a bird or a... Well, that happens to Amanda a bit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, Bill Hader once did a, he once did an impersonation of Amanda on SNL um, oh. that looking back, I don't think it's very flattering. No, I don't (laughs) think it ages well. (laughs) Now I'm going to look that up. (laughs) I mean, if you looked at Dana Carvey doing George H. Bush, it became performance art. It became like hardly an impression. It was such an exaggeration. I mean, it was still extremely funny. Including people in laughs is, I don't know. I mean, if they're not... If they're not laughing at what you're saying, they're definitely, you didn't include them. (laughs) If they're just staring at you and blinking and being like, I don't know, what is is that a joke? (laughs) Then you're not. I mean, Norm MacDonald, he's one of the only people, he was extraordinary and truly a unique talent. Like he would go up and bomb on purpose. He would find it interesting which is an incredibly interesting thing and kind of fuck with the audience that way. And then he could then, if he wanted to, just flip it right back and get him. Huh. I don't know what the formula is for include, like, I mean, I've done it for a while. Thank God that I've, the real job police haven't taken me away. But it's, it's kind of one of those things where like, I think this is funny. Then I'll run it by my friends. And often they'll be like, no. And then once in a while, they'll be like, yeah, that's funny. And then the way I work out material a lot of the time is I don't, I can't just write down jokes and go, and that's why I still use a Motorola razor. I don't do that. So, but I will get a subject. I'll be like, let's talk about wrapping paper. And I have a couple of ideas and then I'll go on stage and I'll take jokes that I know that have worked, not about wrapping paper but something to get the audience in. Like, I'm all, we're all here together and we're all comfortable. Then I'll start trying that material out. It usually does not go well. <laughs> uh, and then I'll finish with something that they like. And then I'll go, what was the, this is just for stand-up. Totally different than mm-hmm. comedic acting. But then I'll take like, all right, that, that, that worked. I'm going to use that next time. And we'll try it again. And then sometimes like, well, this didn't work. So I'm just going to abandon this subject. Or you get these wonderful, happy accidents and you take that thing and you're like, it's no longer an accident. And now I'm putting it into my quiver and I'm going to keep that. So that's, a, again, a very long explanation. I don't, I'm trying to think of like the darkest thing in my life that I can talk about. <laughs> I mean, I really do. I'm not kidding. I can't believe I have, I'm a 51 year old man. And for a lot of my life, I've been able to perform and, and eventually get paid for it, which to this day, I still can't believe it. (laughs) I know that back in the middle ages, I would have been in, you know, like a traveling band of, you know, uh, I don't know what the the, troubadours. Yeah. Yeah. And we'd be like doing morality tales and then be like, can I have a glass of milk and some bread? And then we'll move on. Or they would kill you. So anyway, that I still can't believe. To, it's great. Everyone always talks about how the business is awful and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, every business is awful. And every business can be great. Yeah, I can't believe it. It's so great. Like if I die tomorrow, it'll, I'd be like, gosh, I can't believe all the fun stuff I got to do and get paid for it. What, a, what I tricked everybody. And I'm curious on your uh, comedian's opinion on this funny thing that happened to Amanda once where, okay, so I'll make this quick. I'm a novelist and I uh, was being, there are a few local comics in Seattle that I knew through a friend of mine. And he said, oh, these guys have a podcast and they interview people and they artists and writers and whoever, and you know, you should go on their podcast. And so I meet up with them and go on their podcast and Amanda joins me and she just introduces herself. Hey, I'm Amanda, right? We were just hanging out. I think I was actually working on a little, I was embroidering something for Chris for his birthday. I was making like a Super Mario like cross stitch 
She sits in the corner quietly for two hours while I have a conversation with these two comics and it goes fine, whatever. At the end of the thing, you know, I go to the bathroom and they take me down the hall and show me where it is. And one of the comedians like hangs out with Amanda and chats for a few minutes and then we leave. That's that's the end of that story. It seems like it's done. So funny. Like a year later, <laughs> it's Amanda's sister's birthday. And she wants to go see a comic who's coming to town in, in a Bellevue comedy club. Okay. And so we all get together for the sister's birthday, Amanda and her three sisters, and I'm there. Um, and we go into this comedy club. And the opening act is one of these comedians. Okay. And we're like, that guy looks familiar. And we don't quite remember. And then he tells this joke. And the joke is, have you ever been in a room where a famous person's in the room with you and you you didn't realize it until later. You know, like one time, you know, I, someone told me, oh, Russell Wilson was just over there, right? And, and he's like, well, that happened to me and and it was Amanda Knox, right? And the total irony, of course, that it's happening again, right? To the, to the same guy with the same person, right? And so he tells this joke about how, you know, once his buddy you know, took me down to the bathroom, he was alone in the room with her and they had a nice conversation. They chatted. Um, and then he, when he came back, he's like, oh yeah, that, Amanda's pretty hot, isn't she? And he's like, you, you didn't know that was Amanda Knox? And he's like, dude, you left me in a room alone with Amanda Knox? She had a pair of knitting needles, man. She could have stabbed me to death. And haha, that was the joke. And of course, Amanda's having a panic attack in the audience and her sister is getting really angry. And uh, after the set, her sister dragged this guy out from backstage and <laughs> kind of got in his face and did the, you know, wagging finger in his face thing and um, tried to make him apologize <laughs> to Amanda. And it, it was wow. a, it was a tense, rough night. Wow. And, you know, he yeah, he eventually... Um, we had a follow-up conversation with him later and, and, you know, we kind of reconciled. But in that moment, he was like, look, you know, I'm a comedian. I look for material everywhere. Comedy's comedy. I'm just trying to do something that's funny. And Amanda was, uh, from her position, was like, well, you, you know, like I had a nice human-to-human -human interaction with you and you interviewed my, my then, you know, fiance or boyfriend or something for two hours. And I thought that you kind of saw me as a real person and not just like a prop to be used in your joke. And then after that, you treated me that way. What do you think? Did that guy, did he faux pas? Or is that like the rules of comedy? And you gotta, you just gotta be okay with that sometimes. Maybe the guy should have asked permission. Uh, like, like, hey, I know I know this person now what do you think of this joke? And then maybe, you know, privately you could have been like, we're deeply offended. Please don't tell it. Um, <laughs> or, you know, like if you had, if you had known the joke, I don't know, would it have made a difference? If you had known, oh, this guy that I've gotten to know a little bit wants to tell this joke. So there's that. Could it, I guess he could have done that. It is low hanging fruit. And but the typical thing would be to go for something like the knitting needles joke, but you could, I mean, I don't know. And this is now punch up his joke. Yeah. What's the better joke? Well, no, you could have gone after like, I was terrified because she's clearly violating the Mario brothers copyright law. There's no way. <laughs> yeah. she, she, she's a fucking criminal and should be, she needs to pay the fine. Something like that. Now this comedian is going to watch this and go like, what the fuck? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> Fuck you. And so I used to tell this joke about how, well, I was doing a special in San Jose and I was like, is there a spa or uh, around here, this hotel? And the guy's like, uh, the guy, the guy at the hotel's like, well, you know, all the massages around here are like those kind of massages. <laughs> and I'm like, w uh, explain. And they're like, you got to go to Los Gatos for the, you know, like, and, so then on stage that night, I, they were like, how was your massage in Jose, San Jose? I was like, oh, it was great. It was a crime. <laughs> and, uh, so if that happens next time, you should just stand up, Amanda, and go like, I fucking got the needles with me, asshole. So <laughs> just start heckling him. If he had been up front with you guys, maybe that would have been, you know, there could have been more to explore. Or if the joke was funnier. Right. Yes. When people go like, oh, that's off limits to me. So, so I was like, it could be unless somebody comes up with a really great joke. But, you know, a lot of the time, yeah, it's hard to 
it's hard to navigate those things without, yeah, like as we talked about dancing over lasers, but uh, it doesn't sound like it was the greatest joke. And then you ironically are in the audience. So, I mean, it's, it, it made for a great story on, on the meta level that and, and just I feel bad for that guy that he somehow got himself into the situation of telling that joke with Amanda in the room. You know, it's just such a perfect, it should be an Alanis Morissette lyric, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like that famous scene from Annie Hall where the guy's talking about, I think he's talking about Marshall McLuhan. I mean, yes, uh, Woody Allen, very problematic. Uh, but in that scene, they're in line for a movie and the guy's like, they're going on and on about Marshall McLuhan. And the guy's like, well, I have Marshall McLuhan right here. And then Marshall McLuhan's like, yeah, you have no idea about me or what I, <laughs> my theories. And you're completely off base. And, and then Woody Allen turns to the camera and is like, wouldn't it be great if life were like this? <laughs> That's a very, that should be in a movie. <laughs> I'll work on it. I'll, I'll work on Let's the write script. It right now. <laughs> you know, we read, uh, I think it was on your IMDb page, that your son had to undergo heart surgery mm. as an infant. And I can't imagine how scary that must have been. Um, when, when our daughter was born, within one day, we were in the postpartum room and the doctors started telling us that due to some strange birthmark on her hand, that there was a good chance that she had this crazy rare disease that could have meant that parts of her brain were missing and that she'd suffer from lifelong seizures and uh, she might go blind and her retinas would detach. And so they, holy fuck. you know, at one day old, they're putting her in an MRI machine and EEG uh, EEGs and, and, you know, it's clockwork orange, like eye situations. Like it was, it was bad. We're trying to like be joyful and present that we, you know, have a daughter and like, meanwhile, and actually you know, meet like to get through this like horrendous experience. We just watched the office. Speaking of Rain Wilson, just like <laughs> fucking constantly. We just watched yeah, you were great in that. <laughs> you were you. so good in that, Joel. <laughs> I really am amazing in that show. I'm trying to think if we've ever tried to find humor in that, but I'm wondering like, as a person, Go, Joel, as a person <laughs> who moves through life, like making jokes, like all the time, it, you're even in this conversation, like you're, it's just pop, 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 right? Like, oh yeah, but that's my, that's how I talk. Did you process any of that traumatic moment with humor at the time or since? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was fucking serious. No doubt. Well, first of all, how's your daughter? She She's looks great. great. Oh yeah. 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 And so the doctor was just wrong. Yes. They were wrong. She's oh, perfectly thanks. fine. God. Yeah. But for six months, basically, they still don't know what the condition is. But once she kind of got old enough that she was no longer a little slug and she could show behaviors and so forth, then they could examine her and be like, oh, she seems perfectly normal and healthy. And, and of course, the MRI showed that her brain is all there, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So she's totally fine, apparently. Um, but they scared <laughs> the living shit out of us for six months. We basically cried every day for months and months, worrying that we we're going to have a, a vegetable child, you know. Did the doctor go like, yeah, sorry about that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they, what's, what's like frustrating is there were so many doctors. Like it wasn't just one doctor. It was just so yeah. many doctors. Because there's a dermatology specialist and there's and the neurologist. And then there's the pediatric and, person yeah. who's in the delivery room, but that's not the same pediatric person that you go to on a regular basis. So yeah, anyway, it's a, it was a whole to do. So I think obviously we're on a podcast and stuff like that. I make jokes all the time and it's, but well, that time you, they didn't catch the whole, he had two holes in his heart and they didn't catch it. They they easily should have caught it while mm. in utero, but they didn't, which I was kind of happy about on the app because I was like, well, we didn't have that added stress to our pregnancy. And and then, you know, when it started coming down, so when they discovered the holes in his hearts and, and it said like failure to thrive on the front of his little mm. card when he was a newborn, we were like, what the fuck is happening? Then, then this doctor heard a irregular heartbeat and they were like immediately get to this heart doctor and they were gigantic holes they were huge yeah they were like if you did if you don't take care of this he will be well his heart will grow wrong and then 
he will be a very weak, small child, and he'll be dead before he's 18. Scary. That, yeah, terrible. So, yeah, we did all, I mean, all those things, like weeping in my car, and I remember getting the news and just weeping. And then my parents were in town. I mean, I was like, oh, my gosh. It was a whole thing, obviously. And I was still doing the TV show every week because, you know, I'm like, well, I got to make money. And the show is, you know, like this little tiny show. And so I'd be like, here's another clip of Flavor Flav trying to find the love of his life. Uh, I'm going to go back home and keep this baby alive. And uh, during that time, we had to keep him they were like, we got to get him to try and gain weight before the surgery because he's so small. I mean, if you met him now, he's gigantic. So <laughs> he's he's going to be my size probably. So at the time, we so they, they had, to, we had to feed him. They're like, you have to feed him every four hours. And it took him like an hour and a half to take four little droppers of milk. No. And so... This went on for two months. And so basically my wife and I never slept because I would go to work, go do the thing. You'd feed him for two hours. Then he had to be fed again two hours later because that was the beginning of the next. That was the one time, well, one time in my life. I've had sleep deprivation before, but never over that long of a period because then he had the surgery. And then you brought him home. And they're like, you got to keep this feeding thing going. So I can do pretty well with no sleep. If if I have to perform, no problem. I cannot. If I wasn't asleep for two days, like stay up for two or three days and they'll put me on stage, I'll be like, we're on. I collapse afterwards. But I was like, oh, this is this is what torture is. This is where they don't let you sleep and then things start mm. happening. And I was having, I went to a heart doctor because I thought, I was having a heart attack and then I could not stop being dizzy. Hmm. It was really like driving was like really terrifying. And I was doing, I was still driving everywhere. And then I would hallucinate. I would see people on, on this, like at night I could see, like I thought I would see workers, but then they would evaporate as I got closer to them. I'm like, and I was like, what's going on? The doctor, I remember this one doctor was like, how much sleep are you getting? I'm like, nah, never. And, uh, and I remember getting eight hours in a row. I would just lie on the ground with my head spinning. And I got eight hours in a row and I woke up and I'm like, I'm fixed. And I remember my wife going like, congrats, here's the baby. I'm going to go sleep now. And <laughs> anyway, that was, yeah, that was, that was a time. Mm, another long explanation. Do you, I mean, like, what was it like to have to swap back and forth between your day job of being funny and then dealing with this personal crisis? I didn't really think about it. I just kind of thought I, it was just all seemed surreal. But I remember going like, I need this job. I need to pay for this child and pay for my family. And I wanted to work. So it was like a little bit of an escape. But thinking about it at the time, I don't really remember a lot of it because I think my memory got like hmm. bleached during that time because it was just like such a, I mean, the you know, like, you know, new parent's brain mm -hmm. and then yeah. you've got like a medical thing going on and you mm -hmm. got your work and driving all over. Yeah. And then when we were on the recovery floor, we were with all these kids and pretty rough. I mean, like kids with bowel transplants. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, then I remember this, we were talking to this family and this, they had their daughter and she had a heart transplant and they were like, oh, we were wishing we had what you guys had. Oh. Because ours was like one and done and there are like six or seven surgeries throughout the child's life because when you get into valves and veins, things get way more complicated. So that was such a weird feeling like, oh, we're the lucky ones. Mm. And yeah, I mean, obviously we're very thankful it, it worked, but fucking hey. Yeah, that was a time. Yeah. I remember we were, he was in intensive care and there was a room with no windows. They're like, the parents can go sleep here. There'll be a nurse here all night. I remember my wife and I was like, oh my gosh, we have this blank check to sleep for nine hours. I remember that. Mm. And that was, that was great. <laughs> it was like a hotel. I was like, I'd pay $5 thousand dollars for this hotel this is exact i'd give you anything to be able to do what we just did hmm. 
Anyway, now he's 18. <laughs> I mean, if you had to do a tight five about your infant's open heart surgery, could you? Oh, yeah. I would just have to work on it. I used to do a whole routine about my dad falling out of a tree and shoving his femurs up through his hips. Oh, ouch. Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was like a really good bit. That was like a closing bit. And then he'd be in the audience and I would yell at him about it. That was a good bit. Ugh, the, just the visual of that is so uh, yeah. bad. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was trimming a tree to save money. And, uh, and I would, in the hospital when I first visited him, I'm like, how about saving that 375 bucks? Yeah, you happy about that? Mm -hmm. Way to go. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I like that. I like that stuff. And that's what I've always been drawn to is doing that stuff. I was never a knock-knock joke guy, but hey, there's good knock-knock joke teller, so great. I was very lucky and able to, I was asked to host this thing for the, Los Angeles Children's Hospital, and hmm. I got to like on stage thank the doctor. Oh wow! And that was amazing. His name is uh, Starnes, uh, Doctor Starnes. And um, the story that I tell is that we were all waiting at the hospital to see if the surgery went well, and we're in like the cafeteria, and I'm like, I think it must have gone well because the doctor is sitting right over there eating a sandwich. And we still hadn't heard anything, but they were because they, you know, they open the kit. He doesn't do the opening of the chest. He just does the work Oof. on the heart mm. and then closes it up. He doesn't do the closing up either. He, he the, the, the folks doing the prep do that. And so, yeah, he was done in 15 minutes, which wow. is just that was one of the reasons why he got was so famous because he was the fastest. Hmm. And as, as you probably know, like with surgery, the quicker you can go, that means the less you're you know, exposed mm. and open and all that crap. So mm. another long, long, long answer, guys. <laughs> this is, see, it's a curse. I don't stop talking. <laughs> I can talk forever. Once again, if you need a laugh, check out Joel McHale's latest show, Animal Control, which you can stream on Hulu. But you know what's not a laughing matter? We need your help. Please tell your friends about Labyrinths and give us a five-star review. And thank you to our patrons. You're keeping this podcast alive. You can learn more about our work and how to support it at knoxrobinson.com. Labyrinth is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written and produced by us with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Fun fact, for every hour of labyrinths you enjoy, we put in dozens of hours researching, outreaching, interviewing, scripting, editing, and audio engineering. What keeps us going? Coffee. coffee. So if you're enjoying labyrinths, please buy us a coffee. Head over to patreon.com slash Robinson, where you can make a monthly donation. Thanks for getting lost with us. <laughs>